that one. I mean, you work with cameras so much, you always, always. Well, it's got a nice red light on it. Tally light, yeah. 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 (laughs) This one here, we are going, so. Yeah. Welcome to Trapping Inc. Scuttlebutt uh, Podcast, and we have a very special guest tonight. We have the director. Director? President and CEO. Oh, there we go. I already got it wrong. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> President and CEO of the Alberta Conservation Association, Todd Zimmerling. I got that right. You did. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Very pleasure. Good pleasure to have oh, you, sir. Thanks for having me. And uh, of course, I, I get, full disclosure, Sandy happens to be the treasurer for the ACA here in Alberta. Yeah. So uh, that's, Todd and I have known each other a little longer than that, but I've officially been a part of the board for two years, just past my two-year anniversary. Yep. And uh, was just reaffirmed as treasurer for the organization, and I it's, didn't a big, know that. it's a big honor. As of like, today, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our lives are so busy; we, we collide so infrequently. Infre- it seems that I didn't I didn't know that you were treasurer again. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just happened this afternoon. We've been busy. So, anyway, Todd, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and chat. Um, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about you, how you came to be in this role with the ACA. Well, first of all, we got to get dirt first. I want to know oh, about dirt. I, yeah, first. right back, right back to to the stories about his mom taking him to his grad. Or oh, that wow. guy. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that will be I a lot of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want I want to know your bona fides. Like, I mean, the ACA is like everything wild in Alberta, practically. Um, I think. And and I, so I, I want to know you know about you what, like personally do you hunt do you fish do you trap I uh, yeah I'm definitely a hunter and angler and uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a family that does it all with me I've got uh, a wife who's who outfishes me and out hunts me every single time I go out so that's we always a pleasure that. yeah, that's, yeah. That's well, you know you know that's yeah. very it's you have that common. in common with yeah. him yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I have uh, two kids. Uh, I, mean, I call them kids. They're 20 and 21 now, um, but they've uh, I've always hunted and, and fished with us as well. So the whole family's always done that. So yeah, we're definitely very big into that. Yeah. You know, there are some things that are monumental. Um, you know, for some people, it's when their their child shoots his first animal, and that was our daughter when she shot yeah. her first deer, and it was during one of the great. Well, a day similar to today in Pincher Creek. We were living in Pincher Creek. It was 140K wind blowing. First day that I ever saw cow pies blow across the, the prairie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It would, you know, the half-dried yep. ones would yep. actually pry them up and it would blow them across it. She shot a deer at about 240 yards in, in, in that wind. And it was her first deer and it was just a doe. But it was it was fantastic. But she, you know, it happened kind of in a rush, and she was a little bit excited. And she got too close to it. She was using her mom's bow, two seventy, and and uh, she ended up scoping herself. So there's all this wind going on and everything else, and this deer takes off just like Dale Earnhardt's car, and pretty soon starts making a hard left, and then you know, like big big tumble, and and she turns around, there's blood running down her face. She's a little dazed. And I that that one that I, I remember that so much. That that was the, the major experience with her. And, um, with my, uh, with my oldest boy, it was his first sheep. I have a very proud moment yeah. to be on the mountain with him for, for that. And with the youngest boy, it was, his, it was, uh, first moose, I know muzzleloader moose it was to boot. So very, very, very proud moments. So what was your proud moments with I've, yours? I've got very, very similar stories. Like my, my son, um, he was, he's a year older, so he got to be hunting first. And I remember going out with him the first morning and, uh, uh, Mom and my daughter were, you know, they set up at one end, and Dad and him went up to the other end. We we're on a field, and uh, we sort of got 
seated and I was going over with them, okay, here's where you can't shoot, all right? You know, there's, we know there's a building off that direction, so you make sure you're not shooting there. And we, we know mom and, and uh, Amanda are over there, so, so here's where you can shoot. So if it's here and you look up and there's a deer standing there already, and I hadn't even finished explaining him what he could or couldn't do. <laughs> a little bucket walked out, and like, okay, well, that's in this range we're allowed to shoot. You can shoot that if you want. So he, he didn't have time to be nervous or excited. He just got up and, okay, and he, he lined oh. it up. And, and I remember saying, it's foggy. I'm like, what do you mean it's foggy? Well, I'm looking through my scope and it's foggy. And like, well, he, he had breathed on the scope, right? And I think, okay, well, can you see the deer in the scope? Yes. Can see the crosshairs on the deer? Yes. Okay. So it doesn't have to be crystal clear. As long as you can tell that's your deer, you can see the antlers, you know exactly where you're aimed on it, you pull the trigger. Okay, so he pulled the trigger and down the deer went. But it was you know, his hunt was all of five minutes, oh, and man. four of the minutes was me explaining where you can, or can or cannot shoot. So to him, this whole deer hunt thing was pretty simple to get started. You know, Got just like that. Yeah. Yeah. But with my daughter, it was it was a moose as well, and um, so we were out uh, at Blackfoot Grazing Reserve, and we just live about fifteen minutes from there, and. Um, We'd been out probably four mornings in a row and hadn't hadn't seen a bull yet, had seen uh, cows. And finally, on our, I think, fourth or fifth morning, we're walking down a trail and we we're looking into the, all the openings and there's a couple of bulls standing in, in an opening. And so we sort of creep up on them and uh, get her a, uh, I, I got out a shooting stick for her. So she set her gun on her shooting stick and uh, I had my binoculars out and, you know, the two bulls were sort of walking like this. And, uh, okay, uh, as soon as the left one, Steps out, you can take that one. Oh, wait, no, no, it's the right one. Now it's the left one. So that was like a five minute, this one and that one. When one is clear, pull the trigger on it. And so finally one step clear and she shot and, and it just dropped like a stone, like straight down. And I said, okay, well, that's great. And I'm just watching through the binoculars and that's great. Now put, a, put another shell in just in case it gets up. And I'm waiting and I don't hear another shell going in. And I'm, I'm watching, Amanda, put another shell in just in case it gets up. A moose can get up easily. There's still nothing, and I, I turn around to look at her, and same thing. She's, I think I cut myself. I'm great big <laughs> blood running down, you know, and yep, yeah, you cut yourself, and and she wasn't, she wasn't used to shooting off a, uh, a stick, yeah. and so she just hadn't yeah. held it as hard, eh? And yeah, she had the big gash across the top of her eye, and I said, well, um, you know, I grabbed some snow and stuck it on her hand, like, I would do this, keep it, and she said, I said, well, keep an eye on that moose. What are we doing? Well, if it happens, I'm going to shoot the other side. She said, I can't see on this eye at the moment. Uh, but the moose stayed down. It was great. And then, uh, you know, the two of us packed that moose out. We had, uh, because it was in Blackfoot, it was foot access only. So we had about uh, a kilometer uh, pack to get it out. But it was, it was on a trail. We put, you know, we, uh, we got it out to the trail and uh, got a sled and got it out. And it, it was a great time. And then, of course, we went home, uh, got all cleaned up, and then I, Took her to the Medi Center, and, <laughs> and you know she walks in, and of course the the receptionist says, "Oh, what are you here for?" Oh, well, cut my eye. Oh, how'd you do that? Oh, scope, and you can see the one a scope, and she's looking at me, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, goes off to the room, and the nurse comes in, and went, oh, I got hit by a scope. A scope, and then you know I'm, I'm like, oh great, I mean, cops are gonna be showing up here soon. I don't know what Dad's doing, and yeah, finally the doctor came, got her stitched up, and yeah, she was good. So, but then she, I'm I think I'm the only one in my family doesn't have uh, my my dad and my brother. They 
both have the same cut. And I said, well, no, you know, none of, yeah. one, one of the guys. And I, <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I took one one of our boys to the hospital so many times to get stitched up. And finally, they, they said, well, now, Matt, what, tell us what happened. And I started to talk. They said, no, we're talking to Matt. Get out of the room. And I was like, oh, they think I'm wailing on him. <laughs> <laughs> so same thing though yeah. and it was like oh cops are coming now yeah <laughs> give the boy the look like this is not a time to play yeah around. <laughs> yeah exactly 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 but, uh, but yeah you always remember those experiences it was just uh yeah, and just they so do much too fun. oh absolutely they do yeah. no doubt about it yeah yeah so you did it you were raised in the life uh yeah yeah i uh yeah i've been hunting yeah basically ever since i was old enough to hunt with my dad yeah yeah and your wife uh, she wasn't a hunter until uh, we met in high school, actually. Yeah, yeah. I brought another one to the team. Yeah. I did the same here. Yeah. yeah. She, she didn't hunt nor fish, but she learned. Yeah, well, and <laughs> I guess maybe that's what attracted me to her. She was willing to try it, you know, yeah. something yeah. new. Sure, let's go give it a try. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, no, she, it took her a bit to get into the big game hunting. She didn't mind at all the, the bird hunting, but it took a bit to get into big game hunting. But now, I mean, last year she she knocked down a, a 183 uh, whitetail. God, I hate nice. those yeah. stories. Yeah. And, I, and I packed it out for her. Yeah. I got a 8.3 white tail. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Me too, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. She's, she's good. Yeah, she's... Biggest white tail in our house is hers. Yeah, you know? well... We Mine got... isn't even in the house. Yeah. So, you know? <laughs> well, she's got the biggest white tail and the biggest moose in our house. That's so, awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. I think, you know, we've always said if, if mom hunts, fishes, traps, whatever, then the whole family does. Absolutely. And I, I think that's what brings more kids into it too right yeah there's Absolutely. no doubt about yeah. it yeah. yeah yeah if we could get more moms involved we would certainly have a lot yeah. more kids involved for sure yeah so professionally you have to have some qualifications other than being obviously a great guide <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. so what, what qualifications do you have to run I, the ACA I was just the best looking guy when they interviewed so it was a bad day. Yeah, it was a bad day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got the glare from yeah. her for that. One. <laughs> um, well, so I did my uh, bachelor's of science at the University of Alberta here, and then um, I went off to UBC and did a master's of science there. I worked on uh, snowshoe hares in the uh, Yukon for really? a couple of years. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got so lots of questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, now I got done that, and my wife and I we we got married while we're doing our master's so my wife Linda also has a master's degree in um, forestry wildlife integrated management so we started our own uh, consulting company in northern BC and while we were doing that I had an opportunity or we had an opportunity to get a a fairly substantial contract through the uh, BC government Uh, it was back when um, they had the forest renewal BC program going on where they had a lot of funds coming into the forest industry to work on a wide range of projects and so we had proposed looking at an issue that some of our forestry clients are having where in second growth uh, conifer stands, they would go in and they would they'd thin the stands out so the, the trees would grow faster yeah. and grow better. But their finding is when they did all, they spent all the money thinning these trees and then porcupines would move in and start chewing on the bark. And in a lot of cases, they were making the stand itself uh, non-commercial. They damaged so many trees, it just wasn't worth harvesting after, really? after all that. So we put together a proposal to the, the government to look at doing some type of habitat manipulations to see, you know, what what could we do in these stands that might reduce porcupine feeding damage. And so we got a huge grant to do that. And I figured we we're going to work on it for five or six years. Uh, I could probably get a PhD out of it. So I called up my supervisor from UBC that I had been master's with and said, 
you know, would you mind taking me back? And he said, well, do you have your own money? And I said, yeah. And he said, sure. All right. <laughs> That's <laughs> easy. Yeah, if you're paying for it, then okay. Yeah, you know. uh, so I was really lucky to be able to work as a consultant and so uh, that, did my PhD at the same time. Is that higher education or higher finance? Well, a little bit of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. So, yeah, it worked out really well. Yeah. So what did you learn about defeating porcupines? Uh, we learned we couldn't. That's basically what we learned. So... What we ended up actually doing was, and we were working with with the forest company there, um, we looked, had a number of different uh, cut blocks, and um, we had them go along and do different thinning uh, treatments. So we had, oh, now we're going way back, me trying to remember the details, but the normal stand was running about 4,000 trees per, he- per hectare, so pretty thick, like okay. dog hair thick. And um, they would normally thin those stands down to somewhere around 1,600 stems per hectare. So we had we had a control site that was super thick, and then we had them do some sites that were 1,600 stems per hectare, and then we had them do something at 800 stems per hectare, and then we did an extreme that was basically at the minimum they'd need for it to be commercial was 400 trees per hectare. And at that point, you could drive a truck through the stand without hitting a tree. And the theory was that as you opened up the stand there were several things that porcupines, if they're reading the books, should know that the trees are getting too far apart, so they're using a lot of energy going through the snow from one feeding spot to the next feeding spot, Um, and their predation risk is increasing. And when they're in a tree, risk of predation is relatively low on the ground, it gets a lot higher. So if you get your food source really spread out, you spend a lot of energy, and your risk of getting eaten by something else is getting really high, so probably not a good place to be. You should just bugger off. <laughs> uh, it turns out the porcupines did not see it that way. <laughs> and, and all that happened is in the, the, the 400 stems per hectare stands, they went in and they would just sit on one tree for a much longer time and completely strip it. Destroy and so, it. Yeah. yeah. Completely, like rather than just, you know, taking a chunk of bark like this, they just take the whole entire tree and then move. So there was a higher risk for them moving to the next tree, but they were doing it less often. Yeah. Uh, so they sort of compensated for it, and it was like, well, I guess that's that's <laughs> why they're out there in the wild. They they learn to evolve and, and adapt to those adapt, kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. You, you got yeah, outsmarted so by something that eats pine bark yeah, for a living. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna make it go back even further. What is the most interesting thing you learned about a snowshoe hare? Uh, well, so when I was uh, working on snowshoe hares, I was actually working just on the boundary of uh, Kelowney uh, National Park. So I don't know if yes. you're familiar with that on the Yukon. And so Kelowney Lake is is right there. And I was working on Jacko Island, which is off of the shoreline of Destruction Bay. So if anybody knows that area, it's <laughs> it's a little tiny island out in the middle of a lake in the middle of nowhere. So it, it's sounding forbidding. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so this little island, there have been other students out there over the years uh, working on snowshoe hares because there's a, there's a research base up there as well, the Arctic Institute um, at the, the one end of the lake. And so UBC and U of A and University of Calgary and a bunch of different universities have a research base. They've had lots of grad students there, but they've been working on a snowshoe hare cycle up there for, well, now it's probably almost 30 years. Um, but they were looking at what's driving the snowshoe hare cycle. Is it predators? Is it food? Is it stress in the animals? That sort of thing. All those things have been looked at. But when they'd worked on this island and had students out there, they noticed that the hares out there were not cycling in sync with the mainland. So, well, you had a 10-year cycle on the mainland with the hares. There was no discernible cycle on this island. 
And so why was that? And that's basically what my research is trying to look at, is trying to figure out some reasons as to why this, this island might not be cycling with the rest of the population. Um, so my, I was looking at specifically survival of juveniles, and because that seemed to be, well, that certainly drives the increase in hairs, as all of a sudden you get a lot of juveniles being born. I know a single female is giving birth to four litters in the spring, and each of those might have six or eight young, and they're all surviving, and that, that's what causes such a rapid increase in the population. So I was capturing uh, snowshoe hares that were pregnant and uh, putting them in a, a little pen, basically, for uh, anywhere from a week to well, sometimes just one day till they gave birth. And as soon as they gave birth, uh, I would stick radio transmitters on the backs of the, the uh, leverets, the baby hares, and let them all go. And so with, with hares, unlike rabbits, hares are born ready to go. Their eyes are open, they got all the fur, they, they can survive on their own. But what they do is they stick around close to where they were born and the female will come back every once in a while to feed them. So she'll go to the log they were born beside and they'll all come to her and, and uh, she'll feed them there for the first uh, well week to 10 days and then they'll get a little bigger and they'll start to move a little further away. So they're a real so, turnkey operation. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I was putting the radio transmitters on them and following on a day-to-day -day basis to see we sh how we many were surviving. We should have had that, that, that style for our kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mark that down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little late so, turn the clock. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so basically what I found is because it was a closed population, we had... Oh, a kilometer of open water between this island and the mainland that um, essentially stochastic fact, random factors is what was driving it. So one year I was there, a lynx got trapped on the island. So it was there during the winter, right. ice broke off, and that was stuck on this little island. So as a result, this lynx went just crazy, yeah. killing everybody out there, right? Yeah, then yeah. then it, it didn't have much of an area. We, the island itself was oh, under two square kilometers. So for a lynx, that's not a lot of hunting area. Nope. For so, you know, regardless of how many babies are surviving, a lynx was driving the population down and preventing any cycle to get started. Uh, another spring I was there, there was no predators on the island. There was, there, that's, that's untrue. There was an owl on the island, but, I mean, they were flying all over the place. But what seemed to be uh, driving the, the population that year was we had some bad winter storms, or, or sorry, spring storms. And so if a female happened to have had the, the young within three days before a storm came, those young were dead because okay. they just, that wet, heavy snow from the spring would get on, they get wet, and they die, basically uh, freeze to death. You know, they get too wet. We, we so. have that happen with, uh, with grouse. Yep. Yep. In, Same in, sort of issue. When, when, if if when they're first hatched, if it, if it rains too much... It, yeah, we we will lose an entire crop in the spring. Yeah, and so because this island was it had a burn, uh, so there wasn't a lot of of tall tr um, mature trees to stop snow. It was mostly actually willow, which is why we also had a lot of moose running around there. Um, because you had lots of this willow, not a lot of th uh, big cover to stop snow from coming down. The the baby hairs were very exposed to the weather. So random events were preventing the cycle from necessarily getting started. If a if a predator was stuck, if we had bad spring, that just drove the population down immediately because the population was so closed in the first place. So. And perhaps the population was so small that it, that it didn't take a very significant variable to, to, exactly. yeah. to affect it. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it was, yeah, it, was, it was interesting work for sure. 
um, very different. I mean, I spent, uh, basically I spent two summers trapped out in Ireland you know, myself and at most maybe two other people. So, yeah. <laughs> so just, I, cause I got to know before we move on, yeah. <laughs> my belief was, is that, is that, you know, she has those four letters and there's 46 and, and uh, eventually you hit a tipping point where it's just, it's like an out of control juggernaut and, and, and that's why the population cycle goes. Is that, is that the actual fact or what am I missing? Well, I, I don't think anybody still has pinned down exactly why, but the, the explosion, you know, from lows to highs is certainly that you, you end up with um, females having a, a high number of litters and a large number within each litter. So, you know, a single female might be producing 24, 30 juveniles every spring. And um, I mean, you know, as a trapper, during the low of the snowshoe hair cycle, the links tend to crash. Mm -hmm. And so without the predator, those, yep. all those bunnies survive. So the next year you get that many. So a couple of years of each one of those producing 30 more, it causes a rapid expansion. The decline part is more uh, what, what the research has been trying to look at. And, the, and, and it looks like, you know, you read a bunch of different papers and different, different aspects. It just looks like a combination of different things. It's certainly predators play a role at, at certain points within the cycle that, you know, the lynx catch up and now there's, you know, there's lots of them that can eat them. You run into issues with uh, habitat degradations because the, the hares have eaten most of the best food. So, um, you know, they have issues there. There's also work that's shown that while there's um, stress horm hormones increase in the, the hares as their populations increase. So there's just more interaction between individuals. They get more stress. Those stress hormones reduce the reproductive output. So the females actually start having smaller litters. So there's a whole combination of things that seem to go on. To, to it's fascinating because I, I just I touched briefly on a study and they were talking about the, the effects, the genetic effect of uh, animals uh, being born during hard times, mm -hmm. like star uh, starvation, like with rats. Rats that were born to a mother who was starved and under underfed and that, she might abort some of them, but the, the ones that were born, they were ge genetically or had genes turned on in them that caused them to, to eat faster, eat everything in sight, grow faster, grow stronger, breed earlier. And that was, that was the uh, evolutionary reaction to the mother being in a hard time. And that this sometimes passed down through four generations in the rats. Yep. You know, and, and they're thinking perhaps what this research was all about was, uh, was you know, ob obesity in humans. And if that had anything to, to, to do with it. I know it's just because I like eating. Yeah. But. <laughs> so you think all those obese people are having hard times? I don't yeah. know, all right. <laughs> there might be stress, but I don't know how hard the times are. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was fascinating yeah. anyway. Yeah. So you, you, you became a master or did you get your doctorate? I got PhD. So PhD, yeah. your yeah. doctorate. Good for you. Congratulations. And how did you end up over this side of the mountains? Well, um, so as I said, we'd started, uh, my wife and I had started our own consulting company. So we grew that, that uh, company where we had offices here in, um, in Alberta. We had an office in Rocky Mountain House, an office up in Grand Prairie. And we had an office up in uh, Yukon and Whitehorse. And we had a couple offices in BC. So um, we were working a lot in for well, BC, mostly in forestry. But when you opened up the office over here, uh, we started working more in oil and gas. And, uh, you know, to be honest, we opened our office, I don't know if you remember, oh, it's got to be almost 15 years ago now, when DFO really ramped up their presence in Alberta. They showed up, they had, you know, I think they had maybe two or three people, and then they decided, no, they're going to ramp it right up, and they came in with 40 people, and all of a sudden, the Fisheries Act was being enforced, and 
DFO, define DFO? Uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, okay. sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there was a lot of a lot of companies that didn't know how to deal with the Federal Fisheries Act because it hadn't really been enforced much here in the past. We but were lucky in that we had been working in BC all this time where Fisheries and Oceans was there all the time. That's all yeah. we dealt with. Yeah. And so we actually, um, Linda and I, uh, my wife and I moved back to Alberta. We, My wife was born just outside of Edmonton here, so she was from... Uh, from Alberta, and you know, I'd done my, we'd both done high school here, right in Sherwood Park. So moving back to Alberta was, well, it was a good thing for us. We enjoyed it, but we came back because there was just so much opportunity to work with the oil and gas industry. You, you spoke government. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's, that, that, that it's was, an unknown language yeah. to many people. Yeah, and 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 it wasn't, and it wasn't even that that these oil and gas companies didn't want to follow, they just didn't know what they had to do to follow the rules yeah. because That's it just right. hadn't been enforced. So, um, yeah, from there, we just sort of uh, grew the business significantly with, with that kind of work. Um, and after 10 years, we uh, were approached from a uh, national um, engineering firm out of uh, Toronto that was trying to grow. And we were at the point where we'd grown too big to compete with the mom-and-pop shops anymore. You know, two-person crews can... You know, they charge a lot less than what we could, but we yeah. weren't big enough to compete with the national firms. So we were stuck in the, we either grow ourselves or do we merge with somebody else? So we ended up selling to a, a national firm and uh, I worked for them for uh, a couple of years. Uh, found I just didn't like working for somebody else that much. Um, and so when this position at ACA um, came up, I was, I was quite interested. And, you know, the truth is I got into biology in the first place because I liked being, I liked working with wildlife. I liked, like, the outdoors, fish, wildlife. That's what it was interested to me. I'd become essentially a regulatory expert um, in the consulting world. So right. my job was sitting in, in uh, boardrooms in downtown Calgary and, you know, figuring out how the next multi-billion dollar pipeline was going to get through and making sure all the paperwork was going to be done properly and all the assessments and I wasn't getting to really deal with wildlife or fisheries at all. You didn't Coming like having your, your hat handed to you, you know, you'd rather have your hat handed to you by, by a porcupine than... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. And, uh, you know, I looked at at, uh, at ACA, and the truth is, I didn't know a lot about ACA when I was first approached. And, uh, you know, I was actually, uh, uh, my name was put forward uh, by a, a former employee that had been working for me as a consultant and had taken a position with ACA. And I guess he passed my name along to the the committee that was looking at uh, recruiting people. And, uh, you know, I looked into it, and the more and more I looked into it, you know, this is actually more why I got into biology, the hunting and fishing aspect, uh, conserving habitat, working with hunters and anglers. That just seemed like a lot more fun than as much fun as the oil and gas people are. <laughs> you know, uh, working with the hunters and anglers seemed like it would be a lot more fun. And, uh, yeah, it's been great. So what is the mission of the Alberta Conservation Association? So essentially what we want to ensure is uh, a future Alberta that has um, fish, wildlife, and habitat uh, for all Albertas to uh, enjoy, value, and use. And I think one of the key things we have is that use part of it. The use. The, yeah. Yes. I mean, a lot of, uh, well, I won't say a lot. Other organizations are very concerned about conserving wildlife and fish, but they're not necessarily as, as concerned about ensuring people are able to use them. This consumptive use is certainly consumptive, what, what, yeah, what we're interested in. Yeah. People don't understand is that you can't put that wildlife on the shelf. Yep. You can't. It's, it's, it, and not only that, um, that it doesn't work because you, you end up creating more problems with, with population than that, but the fact is then it loses a value to the humans. 
you know, and, and it's one of the things when people talk about, uh, about hunting in Africa. In Africa, they, they have a saying where if it pays, it stays. And, and what that simply means is that if it has a value, it's, it's going, to, going to survive. Like they say, we'll never run out of, out of uh, pigs and chickens. Yeah. <laughs> somebody's yeah. always eating pigs and chickens yeah. so that animal has to have a value you know in order for people to care about it and so i i'm wholeheartedly behind the consumptive uh use how did aca get started um so aca started back in 1997 and um before that there was a buck for wildlife fund so if you were buying a hunting license you could have a check off where money and presumably originally a buck <laughs> well, I couldn't tell you what it started as, but I'm assuming it was a buck to start with, uh, was going into a fund, and that fund was meant to augment projects that Fish and Wildlife was doing at the time. And so that fund had grown uh, into the several million, I think it was six or eight million dollars at that time. And uh, that was, you know, this was back in the days, well, not too dissimilar to now, where deficits were, were hitting the government. Uh, the government was looking for ways of um, you know, paying down debt, where can we get extra money? And um, hunters and anglers got a little concerned that that fund might disappear, might disappear into general revenue. And so it was really a push by the stakeholders who had put the money into the fund to try to segregate that money away from government itself so that there was a little more control and it didn't disappear. And that's essentially where ACA got formed. <laughs> this, the decision was made. I'm sorry. That's okay been a long day of talking i'm sorry go ahead <laughs> um so the decision was made at that time to create the aca um and some of the staff we have today were there at the very beginning and when i talked to them it was essentially well you know monday morning you come in because part of your salary had been working on projects that were being paid for by this um buck for wildlife fund before You've got a choice. You can either come in and now put on an ACA hat. You're an ACA employee because that's where those funds now are. Or, you know, here's your pink slip kind of idea. So they were you know, told that that's where you're now. You're now an ACA employee. And uh, so it was, it sounds like it was relatively abrupt. Although, you know, to say, to be honest, I wasn't there. So I don't know. Maybe it was a lot smoother. But uh, from the, the couple, uh, the uh, probably half dozen employees that we have here, it was it was fairly quick. And, and uh, that was the decision. Here we go. We're going to put this aside in the ACA. Unfortunately, in Alberta, I mean, a very revenue-rich uh, province, the whipping boy has always been the wildlife, like, uh, and Fish and Wildlife Division. Um, it seems that whenever they want to cut money, that's where it gets cut out of. So it was a good move to move the funding for the ACA out of general revenue, you know, where yeah. everything had always been going was, was to general revenue. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, so... From its original um, mission or idea, how, how has it changed? Well, I don't think it, I don't think the mission has changed as much. Um, certainly, I, I think how we operate and interact with government has evolved over time. Um, you know, clearly in the first couple of years, it was basically government staff that had just you know put on a different hat. So it was it was very government like, and and um, I think a lot of the direction of what they're working on, that sort of thing, came directly from, you know, the local biologists that need you to do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, stakeholder groups uh, wanted to have more input into how those funds were being used. And, and the, certainly they, 
they feel an ownership. You know, uh, Alberta Fishing Game and Alberta Trappers and APOS and all those groups that sit on our board, their members feel an ownership of, of those funds. And so, so they have a lot more input into what happens with now than I think what happened in the very beginning. How many user groups do you work with? Uh, so we've got nine on the board. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we work with essentially anybody who we think we can do a partnership with. You know, Ducks Unlimited doesn't have anybody on our board, but we work with them a lot on wetland uh, work like that. Uh, Nature Conservancy, not on the board, but we work with them on Habitat. So, so wh when you say partnership with, wh what does that entail? Um, so it, it will range anything from, uh, for instance, with uh, Nature Conservancy, we'll both put money into uh, purchasing a piece of land set aside for, for Habitat. Uh, so it'll go that far. In the case of Ducks Unlimited, we did a lot of work where we'll buy a piece of land and then we'll have them come in and do the wetland restoration on it because they're, they're the guys that know how to do that. Okay. So you have this fund of money and you use it for grants, studies? Uh, yeah. So, you know, how, so, so that pot of money came over with us, but what also came over was uh, a levy and hunting license. So that, that buck for wildlife checkoff is now changed into... A levy. So when you buy a hunting or fishing license, most of those licenses, the majority of, of what you're paying will come to ACA as a levy. And it, and it don't ask me to say how much because it varies depending on what license. A whitetail is one and an elk is different and it, it's all over the place. Um, why, why would that be? So I asked that question of, <laughs> of some of the, uh, <laughs> the more senior people at, uh, at Environment who were there when it was first done. And, and it sounds like, you know, a group of people like us got together in a room and said, well, how much more would somebody be willing to pay on an elk license? Oh, well, three more dollars. Okay, well, then $3 will be the levy. And how much more on a whitetail? A whitetail, eh, probably only $2. So, so oh, okay. it sounds like that's sort of what do we think the market could bear for a little bit extra funds to go on as a levy. And as a result, it was a little bit here and a little more in there. And, and it, so it varies. And so over the years, you know, we've gone for a, a 5% increase on the levy. So a 5% increase on $3 is different than a 5% increase on $2. So Absolutely. then they've changed a little bit more. So it's, it's a little bit all over the map as to how it's gone. But so now what happens is when somebody buys a license, whether it's fishing or hunting license, the levy money will come to ACA. And so we use that to operate on a year-to-year -year basis. So we are basically we get about $14, $15 million a year on levies every year okay. to operate with. Yeah. And of course, you have employees. Yes, we have eighty-four staff. Yeah. Okay, and they are all biologists, or mostly uh, biologists. Most of them are biologists. I think it's something about sixty-five are biologists. So we do have. And to you have, have some. offices all over the province. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. From uh, Peace River down to Lethbridge, we've got offices. Yeah. This is to facilitate your, your different programs, projects that you work with? Yeah, because we're doing work all over the province as well. You know, we're doing work, well, we've done work up north um, around Rainbow Lake on uh, Wolverine. We do work uh, way down in the southeast corner on, um, on habitat work and working with ranchers on grasslands and uh, you know, we're in the mountains or, you know, off in the parklands. So we're all over the place doing work. You mentioned the Wolverine one. That, that's actually, being a trapper, that's a, that's a favorite of mine because... Yeah. Um, at one point, there was talk about about uh, closing down the Wolverine uh, trapping, and it was mostly because we had this much knowledge <laughs> yeah. about the Wolverine. Nobody, there was there was zero. Nobody had ever done any, done a study. They were called the ghosts of the wilderness, and the, and the reason was they were ghosts. Nobody knew anything about them. Well, there were all these suppositions and uh, beliefs, and it was you know kind of like your porcupine won't go the extra <laughs> the extra few steps to to the next tree, and then 
when you you did this, it was a groundbreaking study. First, it was a major cooperation between uh, the trappers and and the ACA, and uh, you did this groundbreaking study, and you discovered things like you know sometimes several females will den together, and, and before that, it was believed that each one of them had hundreds of square kilometers they claimed as their own, and then they discovered that the you know the dad of all things would would take a son or two with him for for a year or so and wander around with them, right? It was, there were just so many fascinating things that we were learning. Yeah, I mean, and, and kudos to the Alberta Trappers because they really the ones initiated the project. They came to, to ourselves, um, to ACA, to say, you know, this is a potential issue for us that we don't have data and there is potential for changes to how we can trap these species. What can we do? And so then ourselves and, and ATA sat down with uh, U of A. We, we talked with... Uh, uh, Dr. Mark Boyce, who also sits on our, our board, and he had interest, and so he got a, a graduate student. So between U of A and ourselves and ATA, yeah, it, uh, it's been a, a great project, and uh, yeah, it, it resulted in a, a fair number of very interesting results that, uh, yeah, no one had really looked at before. And you know, I don't believe there's really been much done on wolverines at all in the boreal. Um, no. You know, no that, well, that was the big thing. Usually it's in the mountains that people yeah. have been looking at them, not in the boreal. And so I think people always believed that they didn't they didn't exist yeah, in the boreal. Yeah, there wasn't enough of them to worry about. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it turns out, no, they're pretty yeah. good numbers in some areas for sure. Well, and, and that just kind of takes us off on onto another topic, and that is just around the other things that the ACA does, and that is the, the two grant programs that we run. So maybe you can speak to that a bit. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so we have our uh, conservation community and education grants, which essentially are, they're... I would say non-researchy type grants. So if a group wants to, uh, let's say, put a dock in uh, to improve fishing access at their local pond, they can uh, apply for a grant to that. Or if they want to do a uh, um, some type of novice hunt or novice shoot or mentor program, they can apply for, for funds for that. Uh, in some cases, this group's just wanting to put together birdhouses, just get a bunch of kids outside to, to do something that's related to the outdoors. Uh, so it's it's sort of community group oriented kinds of, of projects. Uh, and then we also have the, um, the research side of, of our grants. So we have uh, grants in biodiversity, which is for students. So it's um, masters or PhD students who are uh, doing work in Alberta. So they can be at a university that is in Quebec, uh, but as long as their work is actually occurring in Alberta, they can apply for uh, funding to, to, uh, for their research and support their degree. And then we have our research grants, which are for the most part, they'd be the type of things that you'd have the, the profs at these universities applying on. And, uh, you know, these uh, the research grants are supporting, you know, world-class researchers. We've got some of the top researchers in the world working on grants that ACA has provided them and working on stuff in Alberta here, um, you know, on a wide range of different projects. So it's, it's really been good. We actually at the board meeting today, uh, we had a presentation of sort of the, the breadth of research that has been undertaking as uh, as a result of the the funds that ACA has supplied over the years. It's, so. And that was really eye-opening yeah. even for a lot of board members that knew this work was being carried on. But I believe it was the library at the U of A that, that did some work for us and com kind of compiling all that information and putting it into a... Um, some pie charts and other types of charts just to show how much... what the what the depth is in the reach of all those papers, how many times ACA was cited, um, how many papers there are. It was 
uh, was it 1900 and yeah, some? Something like that, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was quite interesting. Yeah. yeah, over 21 years, that's, you know, and, and has the grant program, that grant hasn't, program hasn't run that long, has it? Um, 20 years? Yeah, we have had grants for 20 years. We haven't had all three grant streams for all 20 right. years. Yeah. But there's a significant amount of funds that are, that are committed for that purpose. And I sat on uh, one of the grant committees this year, um, it was the CCE yeah. grants that I sat on. It was very interesting projects out there in the community that people are looking for support of. And I think we gave away uh, about $900,000. Yeah. 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 Yes. So that's pretty significant when it taught. And that's just the community. Yeah. Overall, piece of we're it. looking at about $1.5 million a year mm -hmm. that we give out in grants. Yeah. Yeah. The, the community one. Now, that's the one where basically you're looking to create more wind card holders, more. More users. Well, at, at a certain point, yeah, I think that's that's the hope. But it's also the piece around conservation and and right. awareness and. But bringing people into the outdoors. Right? Yeah, uh, that's certainly an aspect. Yeah, or restoring habitat. Some of the groups will apply to be able to plant willows on a, their local creek to try and improve the the water quality in the local uh, creek. That sort of thing. So it is, yeah, it, it's a wide range. Basically, it's just non-research. It's it's on the ground trying to do things either with with uh, the kids or with uh, non-hunters or fixing habitat or, you know, just a wide range. And of some of things. our uh, partner groups are involved in applying for those grants as well, right? So you don't have to be, you know, not affiliated. Right. But, you know, lots of lots of our user groups have been yeah, involved. Yeah, definitely. In Alberta Fish and Game gets funds. Uh, Alberta Hunter Education Instructor, Hunter Educating. Hunter Education Instructors Association, they get funds. Uh, Wild Ape. Sheep has got funds. Yeah, uh, Alberta Trappers yeah. Alberta Trappers, yeah. So the member groups are encouraged to apply as well for, mm -hmm. for various things, yeah. That's good. Yeah. So what is, what would, you, uh, you're supposed to be non-partial, but I know. <laughs> what, what is, what is a favorite project that's going on right, right now or a favorite research, something that's, that's got your interest with, you know, something that's not got to do with snowshoe hair, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, we just we just uh, started a project on Prussian carp, and oh, uh, cool! Yeah, I find it really quite interesting because it's an invasive species that we we now have in Alberta, and we know it's there, but we don't really know a lot about what is the impact. How did it get here? Well, we don't know exactly how it got here so you know there's i know that there were triploids which can't produce but they were used for grass right grass carp well grass carp but grass carp, carp are different okay yeah and and that that's one thing i had learned that you know i didn't know that much about carp in general but there's a lot of different species of carp yeah so prussian carp aren't so you've probably seen videos of you know down in the states of these carp leaping out of the water yes. and knocking people out of well prussian carp only get to be maybe 12 inches long so okay. they're not these big giant things you see jumping all over Damn. the place. Yeah, I know I, exactly. I, 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 also, I also see where they they would go running through and they're, they're shooting. Shoot, shoot. Yeah, yeah. I've seen every crazy thing yeah. possible trying to get rid of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Prussian carp don't get that big. Um, it, you know how they got here? We don't know. It, you know, it may have been through the aquarium trade. Um, it, you know, who knows? We we don't really know. But we, what we do know is we now have them. Um, they're in the the um, I believe it's the upper bow system now um, and a couple other watersheds 
but we don't know to what extent. And more importantly, we don't know how negative their impact is. Okay. I mean, so far we haven't seen any dramatic impacts because of the carbon, but it's a species that is is highly adapted to be invasive in that the females don't need a male of the same species. Basically, they can they can use the sperm of essentially just about any other minnow species that we have. No way. Yeah, so... <laughs> Right, so they literally have no need for males of their own species. So, yeah. So, uh, so if we have a red horse sucker have one too many at the bar that night, yeah, right? <laughs> the Prussian carp's looking pretty fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know, and they can survive in very poor water conditions. Um, you know, they so they can survive in low oxygen conditions that our native fish cannot survive in. They are very yeah. durable. Yeah, aren't they? so it's just the ultimate invasive species. Um, so the question is, is it worse than a brown trout? Yeah. Because the truth is, a brown trout is an invasive species, right? Yep. We brought it in. But now we find it a, a trophy fish. Um, so is a Prussian carp something we have to be really worried about? I mean, my, my assumption is it will have some impact on, on our native fish, but how bad will the impact be? And that's really what we want to start taking a look at is, is this something we need to spend a lot of resources on to try and control? Or is this something we just sort of have to keep an eye on and, and sort of monitor it? And at this point, we really don't know. We don't know how big an issue it is. So we've started with the, the basics of you know, where do we know it is at this point in time? What information do we have? Where people said they're finding it? And we'll sort of slowly add to that and trying to look at, okay, what are they feeding on? Where are they feeding? What impacts are they having on water quality? Uh, are they competing with native fish for what they're eating and all those kinds of things? I know that... Uh, different bodies of water are fished in through the United States and that they have carp and I don't know which kind of carp but uh, they um, they do tend to make problems where you know uh, like uh, Lake Winnebago uh, they get back into the back bays and most of the the spawning uh, walleye in Winnebago are uh, cast on eggs well they get in and, and they they go through the, the are cast on um, on weeds pardon yeah. me yeah. and they go in there and they and they they they, they eat the weeds or, or, or the eggs and, and they stir it up to, to make it so turbid and there's so much silt settles out that it, it, it kills off the eggs, right? Yeah. So they, they're, you know, it's kind of like not directly where they're attacking them, but they, it's still a form of competition. That So you don't know, you don't know what the outcome is when you bring that, that and, uh, you know, bring a for, uh, an invader in like that. And they are so, like you say, they, they, they don't need a lot of oxygen. They, they, they have all these, these, uh, uh, genetic ways of adapting they don't even need to you know the uh, a male of, of the same species it, it's fascinating how, how tough they are oh yeah and, and you know the the way they they take over another invader that's just showed up in alberta is is the rusty crayfish are are, are you doing anything on that uh, yeah at this point it's not a species that that we're dealing with um but yeah it's it's something again that we don't really know a lot about you know, what the impacts are going to be um, but uh, I, I imagine it will be something we'll probably end up you know, looking at eventually. But yeah, right now it's it's not uh, not on our list of, of uh, projects to be undertaking for this year. I know we've just had a problem with whirling disease, and we're learning, you know, through the studies and that 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 it it may it's not that it was uh, introduced; it may have always been here, and that through some way it was triggered or or it, it suddenly became active. Am I am I getting this right or? Uh, yeah, I think, 
I think you're right in that I think there's there's debate as to, you know, depends on who you talk to is whether or not they believe it has just arrived in the last couple of years or whether or not it's been here for 10 years and we just didn't notice it. Um, yeah, I, I think at this point, I don't think anybody really knows. I think there's a lot of theories of what's going on, but we really don't know. Um, all we know is, you know, where where we're finding it now more than anything else, you know, so. And it it's spread across, you know, a good chunk of the province at this point. And time, it affected so. part of what the ACA's mandate is in terms of uh, stocking ponds and whatnot with rainbow trout. Yep. So it affected our uh, the ACA's ability to stock ponds last year because a lot of the... A um, couple of the growers. The, the growers weren't cleared in order to be able to provide fish for stocking programs. Yep. So that affected... But, I mean, maybe you can speak a little bit to that too, Todd, because there's been a lot of uh, really great things that have enabled, the, you know, the Kids Can Catch program and, and where that has come from. It, it's come from a lot of what ACA has done in terms of stocking ponds and, and other um, habitat that we've rehabilitated. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we, we stock uh, ponds across the, the province and... Um yeah, we've been trying to encourage more and more people to uh, get out and use those. And, and what we've been really trying to do is get, I'd say urban families is really what our target is, trying to get urban families interested in either trying it for the first time or in a lot of cases it's remembering that you used to do it as a kid. And it's, not, it's amazing the number of times we, so so basically a Kids and Catch event is essentially usually, like we do one in Fort Saskatchewan here. It's a, a long weekend or it's a, a weekend where we, uh, uh, on a Saturday, we invite people out. We will provide them with a free hot dog, which always gets people out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they get you know if a you hot feed dog. Them, they will come. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some you know, something to drink, something to eat, and we'll provide a fishing rod, and we'll provide mentors there to show them how to use the fishing rod and what to do with. So there's a, a bunch of volunteers that come out to to help people learn how to fish. And so that's number, in the summertime. That's in the summertime. Yeah, um, we do the same thing at Wobman uh, during the February. Long, um, Family Day weekend, uh, same sort of thing. But the number of, of parents that that uh, get back to and say, yeah, I used to fish, yeah, but I haven't taken my kid out. And so, yeah. you know, thank you for sort of prodding me to come out and do this and remember I should be taking my kid out fishing. And that's really what we're trying to do. So it's been, but the Wobman event is, is really quite interesting. We've had, uh, I think we had 1,100 people out there. At, wow. Uh, well, was the last year before this last year was a little colder so not as many but huge numbers of people coming out on the ice there and uh, was really encouraging to see is um a lot of new canadians coming out and uh you know it's something that uh, in some cases maybe they've never had a chance to do from you know where where they'd grown up and it's something they're really interested in and a lot of times you talk to them and it's something they they see as it's canadian Ice fishing is Canadian, yeah. and I, I want to do yeah. something that's truly Canadian, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's, it you know, you, you're dealing with people who've never been on ice before, and the number of people, you know, a registration tent is on Wadman Lake, and they get out there, and they're asking, you know, where is the lake? And I go, well, you're standing on it right now, and, and you can see their eyes kind of like, I'm on top of the water right yeah. now. And, yeah. and so it's a completely different experience, but... Boy, they're, they're sure keen, uh, and they really want to get involved and do it. And, uh, yeah, it's been a great time. We had uh, this past year had uh, uh, all kinds of uh, enforcement officers out there that were helping out, you know, getting to talk to people and uh, showing them how to 
how to set the jig up and uh, put some bait on. And, uh, yeah, it, it's it's really a great time. It, it, it's so funny when you talk about that because I had uh, – uh, a fellow in Calgary who was a buddy, you know, he was in oil and engineering. He had a friend come up from Texas, and he he wanted him to go ice fishing because guy from Texas never nothing like yeah. this. This is crazy stuff. So we could get him, and it was cold. It was one of those, you know, like minus thirty mornings, right? So we're driving out on uh, onto Pigeon Lake, and of course, you know, you, those you get out there, and it's just before daybreak. Shut the lights off, and it's quiet. And of course, minus thirty, then the ice starts to crack and boom, right? Yeah. And like he was terrified. <laughs> he was. I said, was, "I'm terrified." Yeah, that yeah, my wife does not like that at all. No. <laughs> he's just, and he's standing there, he's, and all of a sudden, you know, you you have one of those when you start drilling a hole, and all of a sudden, it just cracks yeah. and shoots out away from you, and it goes right underneath his feet. And he jumps in the air like like a scared cat. And he says, "He says, my God!" He says, "I felt that one." He says, "You sure we're?" This is a four thousand pound truck sitting there. We're fine. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, it's when it doesn't crack that's when you should be worried. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> But the best part was we had a great day ice fishing and that, and then he was just like an old hand at, at the end of it. We're driving home, and then of course it warmed up and it was sunny in the afternoon. There's some kids if they've they've, they've uh, got uh, the snow cleared off on a dugout and they're playing hockey. Well, he had me stop, and he must have took a thousand pictures of kids playing shinny hockey on a on a farm pond. Yeah, well, the stereotypic Canadian yeah, right there. Right? Yeah, yeah, that, that was, yeah, that was that's a Norman Rockwell painting yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. If he was Canadian, yeah, because. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, and it was just something that, that was just every part day of our, our life. And I had a we ha- connect with people all over the world through through Trapping Inc. And I just had a fellow from Georgia, and uh, you know we were talking back and forth, and he was saying, you know, what was the humidity up there and that kind of stuff. And it, and it was <laughs> this was last week, right? And it was I don't know, it was seventy or eighty in Georgia, and, and he he hates that hundred percent humidity. I says, well, our humidity is pretty high, right? You know, and it was at at eighty percent. He says, 80%? How can it be that high there? Well, I says, you know, it's it's about uh, 10 below zero, your language. I said, if it gets any higher, we'd have ice fog. What the, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but I said, you got to understand it, 10 below zero, it... It doesn't. It doesn't have the ability to. You know, eighty percent is is very minuscule amount of of moisture. It's we're, we're very dry. It's it, it's neat to talk to people about those differences. Oh yeah. You know, that, that, that those culture clashes, the stuff we take for granted. So that must be really cool, like introducing people. Uh, especially, you know, I mean, Alberta is blessed in so many ways. We are not blessed in water. We don't have a lot of bodies of water in that. So I mean, uh, for for people. Uh, to uh, be able to get out and experience uh, the ice fishing like that, that, that's that's very cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, they're not blessed in bodies of water, and it, I think this is a, it's a story that we as Albertans have accepted without questioning. We don't have much water compared to Saskatchewan and British Columbia, but I would challenge people to take a look at how many bodies of water you have in Texas Yeah. and down in some of those states, and, you know, they have fewer bodies of water and higher fishing pressure, so... We we don't have as much as our neighbors directly close to us. We still have a good number of bodies of water. And if you take a look at our catch rates, we have catch rates that will beat just about any other jurisdiction around here. You go to Wobman or Pigeon Lake and you're hauling in, you know, 10 walleye an hour. Yeah. That's a pretty high catch rate compared to just about anywhere else you're going to catch walleye. I've, I've, fished, I've fished a lot of places in North America. I've fished walleye all over. And I've, I've, I've fished some remarkable spots. I've fished Lake Erie and... and and uh, Lake Oahe, and and, the, and I mean, they're they're cyclic. Everything is cyclic. Um, it's just we don't have a lot of bodies of water, you know. Like I mean, 
Lesser Slave Lake, fabulous place yeah. to go fishing. We also have, though, lots of ponds, which is maybe yeah, more significant. Lakes, what we call oh, lakes, most uh, people call ponds, yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of the problem, sure. Right, yeah. but I mean, yeah. when you think about what the ACA has done in terms of habitat and so on around, uh, you know, stocking and, and uh, managing some of the, really they are ponds, right? Yeah. But So there is opportunity for people to get out not very far from where they live, and uh, and participate. I mean, Fort Saskatchewan's one opportunity, but they just uh, ACA just stocked one in Grand Prairie, right by the county sportplex, and that's been a huge success. So more and more of those kinds of good news stories get more people out and yes. looking for those opportunities, and that's one of the big successes of ACA. Yeah, that's, and that's certainly something that we're we're trying to do more of is stock urban ponds because that's really where you know where we want to give the opportunity for people who are living in in cities is the opportunity to fish but it is a tough sell for a lot of um a lot of municipalities to convince them to let us put fish in their pond and a lot of it revolves around you know perceived liability risks really yep and I've heard everything from well you know the the water is the, the water might be contaminated so we don't want people near the water. Well, you know, it might be contaminated. Darwinian uh, theory yeah, that goes along here? might be contaminated. <laughs> All right. If it is actually contaminated, then we should find out and do something about it. But yeah. to not to not provide a recreation opportunity like that on the possibility that it might be seems a little weak. But, you know, it's their call. They're, they're in charge yeah. of municipality. And if they've decided the liability is too high, well, then we don't get to it. But, I mean... We're sitting here in the Sherwood Park office. There's 40-some ponds within Sherwood Park. And there's there used to be, when I was a kid and lived here, there used to be fish in some of them. There aren't any fish in any of them anymore. And if you look at well, basically just about any community, there's ponds around. Now, some of them, sure, some of them weren't designed to fish pond, no doubt about it. But that's another thing we can be looking at. Rather than having all these stormwater ponds that don't serve any function but stormwater, could we redesign them so they can work as stormwater ponds but also as a fishery. Well, okay, here's one of the cool things. This is one of the first things popped in my head when we were, you were talking about opportunity and that was that, uh, you know, I, I fished once as a, as a professionally as a fisherman, right? I was uh, on the walleye trail for five, six years in the, in the United States. Well, you end up places and you go golfing. And, you know, somebody wants you to go golfing. I'm not a big golfer or anything. But every one of those water hazards in those golf courses had fish in it. So pretty soon I've got a fishing rod instead of the nine iron, yeah. and everybody else is trying to beat that white ball around, and I'm, I'm getting a, a large bass bass out of the out of, out of the uh, fifth hole. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like to me that was fascinating, and I always I, I I thought well you know I guess most of our ponds are free you know in golf courses with free solid or whatever, but. God, that would be so neat. Oh yeah, like, yeah I mean, the, 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 every one of them. They, the, you know, the, there, there, were, there was crappie. There was, you know, there's white and black crappie. There was bream sunfish. There was, there was all these different fish in that. I, I just found it just so fascinating. Yeah. But all these ponds that you're talking about, I mean, it, yeah, those are huge opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's something we're working on, and you know, we we have to uh, basically, I guess, we have to get by this whole liability issue and figure out, you know, how how we can reduce that for the municipalities. You know, and, and, and you know, I can understand it. Um, was it last this past spring? Maybe it was the previous spring where a young girl died here in Edmonton. Um, she went in to, I think, rescue her dog and got stuck in the mud. You know, so it's a tragic story, absolutely, no doubt about it. So there are some risks around some of these ponds for sure. But, you know, uh, 
There is risk to getting out of bed there, in the morning. There is, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. So, and you know, so that's, that's something we have to sort of try and balance and figure out how we can get around that. But boy, it sure would change the landscape here in Alberta if everybody was within 500 meters of a fish pond. Wouldn't it? Well, you know, and I, I as, okay, purely from a selfish point of view, as a rural redneck living out there, living the good life, I know that my future use of those resources depends on the urban people understanding it. Absolutely, it does. And that's where I really like what you're doing here. I didn't know anything about it. You don't tell me anything. You don't tell me anything anymore. <laughs> it's all a big secret. <laughs> yeah. I guess yeah. so. So there's a couple of other things that I wanted to bring up too because I think it's really important because it's not just about fish and it's not about just about grants, but it's, um, you know, the Harvest Your Own program um, for hunting and then also the land, uh, the the conservation lands that the ACA has acquired and works in partnership with other groups and whatnot. So maybe we can talk about those two things. So maybe sure. uh, harvest your own first. Yeah. So um, basically harvest your own, uh, we've got a, a separate web, website now, harvestyourown.com. But the whole concept was around this trying to get, um, I would say the non-hunting public interested in wild game by not talking about as hunting, but talking about it as food. Mm -hmm. So we've got a huge movement out there of people looking for, you know, no added hormones, no antibiotics, free range, you name it. Ultimate organic. Which, yeah, which that's what, when we when you hunt, that moose you shot has all those qualities. Yep. Uh, you know that it's been ethically killed because you are responsible for it. You know how the meat has been treated, for li literally, from field to fork. You know every step because you're the one doing it. And so that was sort of the, the campaign we've launched is to try and, and target those people. And to be honest, the research shows it's, it's younger people in that you know 20 to 35 range. And that's really what we're trying to do is get them interested in the idea. If that's what you're looking for, check out Wild Game. Check out the idea of harvesting your own food. And so we developed the website. And it's got... Everything on the how-to, you know, where you'd go to get you to get a license, where you get your training in the first place, how you get your your uh, possession and acquisition for your your rifle itself, then where would you go to actually harvest animal, and then we have videos on okay, you've now you've shot a deer, now what do I do? Well, there's how to clean it in the field and how to deal with it when you get it home, and then there's recipes. So the whole it takes you through what should be all the steps that you'd want to go from I have no idea what I'm doing to master cook at the end. So that's that's essentially been our goal. You can and you so can check out the recipes, the master cook part. <laughs> oh, wow! No kidding! Wow! Now, there are some really good recipes on there. I'm not saying you need them, but I can tell you that my wife has grabbed a few of the recipes and and uh, you know done very well. Well, Brad Fenson's a good friend of ours, yes. and and he is uh, he's got some skills. Yeah, that and guy. that's where a lot of the recipes came from. Yep. Is Brad? He was really a great help um, you know with uh, Brad Fenson outdoors there helping us out with articles and uh, with recipes and that sort of thing and yeah, yeah it's been good interesting you know uh, I do a lot of uh, waterfowl hunting and snow geese I shoot a lot of snow geese and most people you talk to, them, ooh, snow geese. Like, uh, well, your yeah, favorite yeah. Rest, favorite recipe for snow geese always always starts with you're not even gonna know it's goose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Most people tell me you use the rock method. You boil it with a rock and then throw it out and eat the rock. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you know, to be honest, for years it was always yeah, good. We shot some geese. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll have them. But uh, no, with uh, with uh, cooked properly, these things take 
you, you would you wouldn't tell it was a goose. You wouldn't tell it's snow goose. I it's, heard it's one awesome. of the board members yakking away about speckled speckled bellies. Yeah, speckled yeah. bellies yeah. and Specs. saying that yeah that they're awesome. I we haven't yeah. had an opportunity to have yeah. any. Well, of that, so. we did one, one one time. I brought some specks home from from uh, a hunt and. Uh, they were good. We wrapped them in bacon. You didn't even know you'd eat goose. There's no doubt. There's a big difference between a speck and, and a, a snow goose for sure. But uh, yeah. you no, know, I I encourage anybody, if you're new to it or if you are a long time waterfowl hunter and have some reservations about eating the waterfowl and what they taste, go to that website and check out some of those recipes, and I'll guarantee you you'll have a uh, a new appreciation for the waterfowl for sure. So, what's your response been to this? To it's been really this good. Program? Yeah, it's been really good. Um, we've certainly had a fair good uptake within the public, and we've had a good response out of uh, getting support. Like we've run a bunch of different, um, uh, uh, I guess, campaigns or, or giveaways on the website to try to get more interest. And we've we've got a number of different uh, companies that have thrown us some, uh, basically, some swag to give away, and it's been it's been really good. So uh, a lot of support out there in industry as well. Yeah. Biggest surprise. What what you weren't expecting, or something that that you know the biggest surprise is we've run a bunch of different ads on TV, and we had billboards in Calgary, um, and the biggest surprise is the lack of pushback. Yeah, I haven't had a single anti-hunter or anything like that, and and I think the reason is because our messaging isn't about hunting. Our messaging is about food, organic food. Yeah. And and trying to change this discussion. We're not talking about hunting. We're talking about this is a food source. I know, and you, yes. you've 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 changed the focus. Yes. And it, you've taken the, taken out the the, the hunting, the, the the trophy aspect, or or the killing and all that. It's just it's now food. Yeah. And and people take a step back. I think Sandy and I get very very little feedback, very negative. Or pardon me, very little negative feedback on on the trapping and that. I think it's because her and I are so boringly normal. You know, we are just boringly normal. Well, it's our, one of you, you can speak. One of you is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You notice he's not pointing fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 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 that's our that's our secret weapon. We are so normal, and people take a step back and say, "Well, they're normal. Why? Like, yeah. You know, yeah. may, maybe maybe I got to re, re you know at least give this Rethink trapping I, yeah. trapping idea a little bit more thought." And yeah. I, and that's what you're doing there. Yeah. I mean, you're you're turning it into that food source and and. That's fascinating. That, that, that's, a, that's a great spin. Yeah, and, and that's basically been our, our taglines has been, you know, no hormones added, no antibiotics, free range isn't, you know, yeah. that's what these people could, well, here it is. It's right here. So, yeah. you know, what? now you have to step back and figure out why you're not doing it. What's stopping you from not? Well, it's funny because there was a study that I read where uh, one of the biggest uptakes on, on, the, uh, on hunting and, and hunting your own and the no hormones and that where women... Uh, w- w- young young women in Toronto, and they don't even tell their friends. It's like a dirty secret. Yeah. But they 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 are so concerned about getting that organic, yeah. free range meat in that, and they've they've taken up hunting. Yeah, it, and it's certainly the we we see it in our stats too. The fastest growing proportion is women in in getting into hunting. Now you start with a small number, then you know yeah, proportion. Yeah. But still, that women are are certainly coming into hunting more and more for sure. And uh, yeah, we're seeing. The, the website's been great because we're getting more and more stories from women who say, hey, I went and I, uh, I harvested my own animal. And we had a young woman who uh, in, in our office here actually went out and shot her own white-tailed buck uh, two weeks ago. Uh, her husband stayed at home because had uh, things the kids had to be off the hockey, and so she went out on her own, shot oh, a white-tailed cool. buck, <laughs> dragged this thing out of the bush on her own, threw it in the back of the truck, <laughs> and... Uh, 
I would guess that whitetail probably outweighed her about two and a half times. <laughs> she, not a big woman. Uh, and she did now, you know, she thoroughly admitted for a week afterwards she had trouble walking. She was <laughs> sore all over. But, you know, that was a heck of a feat and very impressive. But, you know, when the adrenaline is flowing after that, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and, yeah, we've been there. You know, and there's no reason why a woman can't do that. And, uh, yeah. Well, it's kudos great to, to her. See. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the land side, so the habitat, yeah, that's something. So ACA has a, a fairly active habitat securement program uh, where we look for opportunities to purchase habitat and set it aside in perpetuity for uh, hunters and anglers to use, essentially. So we, uh, we've we had that go- been going on for quite a few years. Uh, we put together a, um, a guide every year. Um, so the, um, you can get it in hard copy or even go to our website and look for the Discover Guide. And uh, on there, we've got habitat we've purchased, uh, Alberta Fishing Game has purchased, um, some that we've partnered with uh, Nature Conservancy, and Ducks Unlimited. So there's almost 800 different pieces of property. And there are also those uh, that have donated land as well. Yeah, that's becoming uh, a bigger and bigger thing. Um, You know, we're, we're seeing the general population getting a little older and getting to that retirement age, and we're seeing a lot of people, um, oftentimes, uh, you know, uh, ranchers or farmers that have sort of decided that uh, they haven't got family you want to take over the land and they'd like to donate it to conservation and, and yep. uh, make sure it's uh, conserved going to the future. So it's uh, yeah, it's been really good. So the ACA is just a very broad-reaching um, organization and, and very unique, um, not just to uh, Alberta, but unique across the country. So I think there's a lot more, a, a lot of other provinces, states, territories that, that might be very interested in what we're doing here and i think that's the case isn't it oh definitely yeah i i got get calls from other jurisdictions all the time um Mm -hmm. looking at how do we get our funding how are we set up how do we interact with government that sort of thing because yeah it's we're extremely unique um and uh you know what our funding model is unique but the other thing that is unique is the way we're governed by a a group of different conservation organizations Mm -hmm. so that we don't have it's not a bunch of people out of the public who've just selected to sit on the committee or on the board. It is member groups who've selected individuals to sit on that board. So it is very unique in the fact that we have all these conservation groups that work together to form ACA. And you also have, which I am one, is a public at large members, yep. which also represent the general public in the various quadrants of the province as well. So it brings a little bit more. Um, not more balance, but a different balance yep, to the board. Absolutely, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's very unique that way for sure. Well, tell everybody where the the, the pertinent websites where they can uh, go and check out your programs, your projects, uh, the ACA, and we'll let you go. You've been a, you've been on the clock a long time tonight. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's just www.ab-conservation.com, and uh, yeah, you can go from there, or you can go to harvestyourown.com uh, if you're a Someone who's interested in getting into hunting, that would be the place I'd recommend you start. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. Um, I'm going to pester you forever about them rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> hairs, not uh, rabbits. Yeah, hairs, hairs. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the truth is, though, you can pester me about the rabbits, not a problem, but the truth is my one claim to fame in the world is that I am one of three porcupine experts in Western Canada. Because only two other people have actually worked on porcupines. That's how important they are, that only three of us have bothered to do it. So, How big a discount does that get you at Tim Hortons? Yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> it's a good party conversation, but other than that, it hasn't really done anything for me whatsoever. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Todd. Right, I do. It's you. been thank a long you. day. Yeah, I appreciate. Yeah, it's great though to have you here and tell everybody a little bit more about what we do here. Well, thank you. Thank good. you, folks, for for watching us. We'll. Uh, Make sure that you check out us at www.trappinginc.com. All of our digital platforms and everything are there. Thank you. <laughs>